Shall we turn in our Bibles, please, to the Gospel of John, chapter 4? The Gospel of John, the fourth chapter. In our Sunday school, we are entering into a study on the subject of worship. And as I went through the confession of faith and sought to categorize and summarize uh, the things that it addressed, I, I realized that there was a number of things it did not address. And so, as we are beginning to launch out upon this chapter, I thought it would be good to address some of these other matters that the confession uh, passes over so that we could have a fuller and better comprehension of the nature of Christian worship. And so, what I want to do this morning is to talk about what worship is and what is necessary in order for us to be able to worship. So John chapter 4, beginning at verse 19, and we'll read down through verse 24. Now this is the story of Jesus teaching the woman at the well. And in verse 19, the woman said to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither worship neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship, you know not what. We know what we worship. For salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now, we as the people of God have worshipped God for years and years and years and years in church, in this church and in other churches as well. And you know, for something that we do so much of, it is unfortunate that so many people are so ignorant. You would think that someone who cooked for 20 years would be a good cook and know a lot about cooking and the chemistry of various foods and how they all work together. And in the same way, you would expect that someone who had worshipped for 20 years would have a very deep, profound, and biblical understanding of worship and how it works and what it is and how it functions. But unfortunately, people do an awful lot of what they call worship, but they have very frequently very little understanding of what it is. And we have to ask ourselves the question, do we really know what true worship is? It's important that we know because we can greatly offend God if we offer to Him worship that is not pleasing to Him. Many people think they are worshiping God and they come and they offer to God worship and they think God is pleased with what they're offering Him, 
And in fact, not only is not God pleased, God is more angry with them after they leave than before they came. And they have actually brought to themselves the judgment of God. It says in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 through 14, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this at your hand to tread in my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with it. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. Wow. These people thought they were bringing God worship. And God said, take it away from before my face. It angers me. It wearies me. It's a trouble to me. Who required you to come and offer me that kind of worship? I certainly did not. So, we see that God is greatly exercised about the kind of worship that is brought to him and the kind of people who bring it. Jesus brought a similar indictment against the people of his day. In Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 through 9, he said, You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draws near to me with their mouth and honors me with their lips but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And so what Jesus is saying is the worship that is offered is vain. That is, it's empty, it's unacceptable, it's offensive to God. So, as our passage this morning tells us, Jesus is seeking, God is seeking true worshipers. True worshipers are those, he says, who worship in spirit and in truth. To worship in spirit means that worship involves the whole heart, the inner man, that is. It's worship that proceeds out of our spirits. It is not mere external religious formalism that does not engage the heart. And it's worship in truth, that is, worship done according to the truth of God that is contained in the Word of God. That is, it's true worship, worship which God Himself has prescribed, and therefore worship that is according to His truth. So we have to worship in spirit, and we have to worship in truth if our worship is going to be acceptable to God. And so we have to worship in spirit, and this is why we cannot be mechanical and external in our worship. We must resist external ritualism, where the emphasis is upon the liturgy and the form, rather than upon the sincerity and engagement of the heart. Now, of course, worship must have form, but form cannot become an end, but really it could only, should only be a means to engage the heart 
so that the heart and its actions and communion and relationship with God is what is central and primary. And then, of course, because we have to worship in truth, this is why we cannot innovate in our worship and do as we please. It must be that which God has required and approved, both as to its content and its methodology. Here God says in Isaiah, who required this at your hand? And the clear implication is, if you're going to bring worship, it better be worship that I required, not worship that you invented. And so God is seeking true worship. And God is seeking true worshipers. He does not receive false worship. And He does not accept false worshipers. They only inspire His disgust and His judgment and His wrath and rejection. So the question we must ask this morning is this. Is our worship acceptable to God? Do we have any assurance that God is pleased with the worship that we offer to Him today in this church? It's important for us to understand that God will only be pleased with worship of which He is the author. You recall that when Cain and Abel each brought their offerings, God accepted Abel's offering and He rejected Cain's offering because Cain's offering wasn't what God prescribed. You recall that when Nadab and Abihu brought strange fire into the temple which God had not commanded, he struck them dead. And so this business of offering worship to God is a very serious matter. God takes it seriously. We must take it seriously. And we must, we must studiously examine the scriptures to understand what worship is pleasing to God and how we might offer it so that God... Uh, looks upon us and says, yes, these are the people that I am seeking. And this is the worship that I am seeking. These people are worshiping in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. So to try to understand those questions and to orient our thinking this morning, in the first place, let us ask the question, what is worship? What is worship? Now, the words for worship in both Hebrew and Greek literally mean to bow down or to prostrate oneself before another. It is the homage, it is the honor, it is the reverence that is paid to a superior being to someone that you recognize is above and over you. Now the words for worship, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, are used of worship of both false gods as well as of the true and the living God. Therefore, in order to obtain a picture of how the true God is to be worshipped, what we want to do is look at several examples of the way in which people worshipped the true God and draw out of those examples guidelines for ourselves. Now, the problem is that people are fallen, people are sinful, 
And even when they're worshiping the true God, oftentimes they do it wrong. So what we want to do this morning is we want to look at the example of pure, sinless, perfect worship of God. And that is the worship of sinless humans in heaven. Now we can be assured that when we see people in heaven worshiping God, that there is no error, there is no sin, there is no insufficiency mixed in with it. Just ignore the frogs. The devil is stirring them up. I can outshout them. And you can block them out. Turn in your Bibles, please, to Revelation. Revelation chapter 4. In Revelation 4, verses 10 through 11, it says, The four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne, and worship him that liveth forever and ever. And cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. And so here we have an example of people worshiping God in heaven in a sinless environment, in a sinless fashion. Turn, please, to Revelation chapter 7, verses 11 through 12. In Revelation chapter 7, verses 11 through 12, it said, And all the angels stood round about the throne, and about the elders, and the four beasts, and fell before the throne on their faces, and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing, and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might, be given unto our God forever and ever. Amen. Now turn please to Revelation chapter 11, verses 16 through 18. This is the passage we just read in the providence of God in our scripture reading. Revelation 11, 16. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, we give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned, and the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that thou shouldst give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldst destroy them which destroy the earth. Now, I know we went over those passages a little quickly, just simply reading them, but what I want to do is I want us to notice several characteristics uh, that are common to all three of these passages that describe the nature of this worship that is offered to God. Notice, first of all, the preparation for worship. The preparation for worship. Now, in each of these passages, it says that these people fell on their faces. 
And this falling on their faces is something that they did prior to actually worshiping. What the passages say is they fell on their faces and worshiped. And then the worship is described. But notice before they worshiped, what did they do? They prostrated themselves before God. They entered into worship with an attitude of submission. They entered into worship with an attitude of humility. And they entered into worship with an attitude of reverence. Submission and humility and reverence were all expressed in this act of falling on their faces before God. And so we must come to worship with this attitude and disposition of the prostrate heart. Of the heart that, as it were, has fallen on its face before God. The heart that comes with an attitude of submission rather than rebellion. An attitude of humility rather than pride. An attitude of reverence rather than flippancy and carelessness. And this is the reason why we have instituted in our assembly a period of silence before the service. As soon as the instruments start playing, that's a signal for us all to sit down and take our seats and be quiet and cease our conversation so that we can prostrate our hearts before God. So that we can place ourselves through prayer and meditation into a disposition of submission and of humility and of reverence so that we are then prepared to enter into the worship of God when it actually begins. And so this is the reason for the designed period of silence before we start the worship. And so that's why we ask you to cease from conversation with others during that period. As soon as the instruments start playing, you're to sit down. You can open your Bible and start reading it. You can start praying. You can have an opportunity to confess your sins. You can have an opportunity to pour out your heart before God. You can pray for the effectiveness of your worship and of the ministry of the word. All of these things are a preparation and a cultivation of an attitude of submission and humility and reverence before we enter into the worship of God. The second characteristic we want to notice is not only the preparation for worship, but then secondly, the activity of worship. Now, I want us to notice several characteristics of this activity that these people actually engaged in in these three passages. Notice, first of all, it was a conscious and deliberate activity. It was a conscious and deliberate activity. Now, our passages say they fell on their faces and they worshipped God saying, and then they said stuff. Right? Okay? They said things regarding God. And they said things 
regarding His works and His attributes and His purposes. And the point I want to make from this is this. Their minds were actively engaged in thinking about God and expressing God's character and God's works. In other words, these people weren't just sitting there passively while some preacher was up front expounding to them and they were just sitting there blank receptors. Every one of them were actively thinking about God and interacting with God with their mental faculties. They were not passive receptors. They were active participants and respondents to what was occurring. They thought about what they were doing. And they did not simply observe worship. They participated in worship. And the principle is, you must give yourself to worship with every fiber of your mental faculties. You cannot simply shift into neutral and wait for something to happen to you. You, when the scriptures are being read, need to focus intently on what is being said and what that means to you and what you need to do about that and how you need to respond to it. And when the hymns are being sung, you need to enter into the meaning and message of the words with your mind. And if it's a prayer, pray that prayer to God. If it's a praise, express that praise to God. Whatever the nature and content of the hymn is, you need to be fully mentally engaged with that information and interacting with it in your heart in relationship to God. And in the same way, when someone is leading in prayer, you don't just sit there and passively listen. You enter into that prayer and that becomes your prayer so that you're sitting there saying, yes, Lord, I want that, Lord. Please grant that, Lord. Lord, that has the yea and amen of my heart. And so that the prayer of those who are leading becomes your prayer and you enter into it. And it's as much your prayer as it is theirs. And so we are all with one mind and one mouth praying to God. And so with reference to the activity of worship, we see that there was a conscious and deliberate activity that is these people's minds were actively engaged in what they were doing. They were active participants in worship. They were not mere spectators. Secondly, not only was it a conscious and deliberate activity, it was a wholehearted activity. It was a wholehearted activity. When we look at these people and we see what they were doing, you know there was only one thing on their mind. And that was God in His worship. Worship demands the employment of all of our faculties and all of our attention and all of our focus. And it's supposed to be totally on God and not on anything else. Now, Hosea declares God's judgment on those who come to Him in worship with a divided heart. In Hosea chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, God says, Israel is an empty vine. Wow, that's an interesting statement. Israel is an empty vine. 
He says, he brings forth fruit to himself. Not, there's nothing on that vine for me. What's on that vine? It's all for them. He says, according to the multitude of his fruit for himself, has he increased his altars? That is, they've designed a whole bunch of altars for worship for themselves. According to the goodness of his land, have they made goodly images. Now here it is. Their heart is divided. Now shall they be found faulty. God shall break down their altars. God shall spoil their images. You see, they were coming to worship for themselves. And you've heard me say this on more than one occasion. Worship is not for us. And a lot of people say, well, I go here or I go there because I like the worship. And what they mean by that is that I go and I get the feelings that I want to get and I get the experiences I want to get and I go out of there with my emotional ticket punched and I feel like I've had a good time. No thought about what God thought about it or whether He was pleased or whether any true fruit of worship was brought forth to Him. And so God said, your heart isn't for me. It's divided. Yeah, you throw me a few crumbs, but really it's all about you. He says, you're bringing forth fruit to yourself. As far as I'm concerned, it's an empty vine. There's nothing there for me. In Psalm 86, verses 11 and 12, the psalmist says, teach me thy way, O Lord. I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. I will praise thee, O Lord my God, with all my heart. Not just a piece of it, while the rest of it's over here, but with all of it. And I will glorify thy name forevermore. The point is, is you can't knit and worship God at the same time. You can't think about other things and worship God at the same time. God demands wholehearted worship. The uniting of your heart around one thing, and it's not yourself, it's not your issues. It's not your problems. It's uniting your heart around Him. The third characteristic of this activity of worship, not only do we see that it was a conscious and deliberate activity, not only do we see that it was a wholehearted activity, but as we look upon this heavenly worship, in Revelation 4, 7, and 11, we see that it was a God-centered activity. It was a God-centered activity. When these people were worshiping, they had one 
focus, and that was God. True worship is always focused on God. They said, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive. And they worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving be unto our God. The four and twenty elders worshiped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty. There was a single minded focus, and it was upon God. You see, worship is not to be focused upon individuals, worship is not to be focused on activities. Worship is to be focused on God. And out of this understanding comes several choices and determinations about how worship is conducted in this church. One of the reasons why we do not, in our public prayer from the pulpit on the Lord's Day, pray for specific individuals and all their needs is because the Lord's Day worship isn't about individuals and their needs. It's about God. We pray for individuals and their needs on Wednesday night. Because that's where the focus is. It's on the people of God. But in the worship, the focus is upon the person of God. This is the reason why I don't have you stand up and turn around and shake hands with the person in the pew behind you. Because it isn't about the person in the pew behind you. This is the reason why we don't spend our time in endless inane announcements, turning our focus away from God and on to what everybody's doing during the week and what all the programs and activities are. This is the reason why in the pulpit I don't play a master of ceremonies role where my personality is what carries the service, enthuses the people, And makes them want to participate. That's the reason why we don't have carnal displays of individual musical talent. We want people out of the way as much as possible. We want people out of our thoughts as much as possible. And we want thoughts of God and offering of praise to God to be front and center as much as possible. When you look at the worship that took place in heaven, pure worship, no sin mixed in with it, those people weren't thinking about each other. They were thinking about God. They weren't standing around shaking hands with each other or singing solos to each other. They were all participating with one mind and one mouth and one focus on God. Just like a funnel has a big mouth and everything you put in it focuses everything down to one point. And in the same way, everything that goes into our worship is to all be focused down to one thing and that's to the person of God. So all of our singing All of our prayer, our Bible reading, our preaching should be focused upon one person, and that is God. 
It shouldn't be focused on a performer. It shouldn't be focused on the preacher. It shouldn't be focused on the person across the aisle or in front of you. It should be focused on God. Well, what is worship? Worship is a conscious, deliberate, wholehearted giving of honor and praise to God in an attitude of humility and submission and reverence. Worship is a conscious activity. It's a deliberate activity. It's a wholehearted giving of honor and praise to God with an attitude. An attitude of submission and humility and reverence. The attitude of the prostrate And that brings us to our second major point. Having seen what is worship, in the second place we want to ask the question, what is necessary for worship? What is necessary for worship? Do you realize that not just anyone is capable of true worship? Not all people have capacity for worship. There are certain qualifications and characteristics you have to have before you can worship and have your worship be acceptable to God. What is necessary for worship? We'll notice, first of all, there must be an accurate knowledge of the true God. There must be an accurate knowledge of the true God. If God is to be worshipped in truth, then the truth about God must be known. You remember our text in John chapter 4. God is a spirit and they who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And if He's to be worshipped in truth, then the truth about Him must be known. And that's why Paul said on Mars Hill in Acts 17 and verse 22 with reference to the altar that these Athenians had to the unknown God, he said to them, whom you therefore ignorantly worship Him declare I unto you. And what Paul was saying is, look, ignorant worship is unacceptable. If you don't understand who God is, and so you have some false idea in your mind about what God is like, and you worship that false idea, you're not worshiping the true God. He said, him who you ignorantly worship, I'm going to declare to you, here's who he's really like, and this is the God that you must worship. And this ignorant worship, I'm not going to leave you in that because that doesn't work. It's not acceptable. It will not function. And so ignorant worship is unacceptable worship. This is why Paul went on to teach them about the true God. And so the pagan or the Buddhist or the Muslim cannot worship God no matter how sincere he is because sincerity is no substitute for truth. When we look at the passage in John 4, we see the Samaritans were very sincere people. But do you remember what Jesus said to them 
He said, you worship you know not what. And then he went on to say, we know what we worship. For salvation is of the Jews. And what he was saying to them is, look, you don't know what God is like. And therefore, you cannot worship Him until you know some facts about Him. And what did the worshipers in Revelation do? The three passages we looked at. They started reciting truths about God. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to God. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because you've taken to thee thy great power and has reigned. And you will destroy them which destroy the earth. And you will give reward to your servants, the prophets, and to those who fear your name. What were these people doing in Revelation? They knew stuff about God that was true. And they were reciting that stuff about God that was true. They were worshiping God in truth. They were not worshiping God ignorantly. They knew who God was. They knew what his characteristics were. They knew what his behavior was. They knew what his attributes were. And all of those things comprised the substance and content of their worship. And so they said of God, you are creator, you have wisdom, you have power, you have sovereignty, you've had blessedness. And the point is, you can't worship in truth until you know some truth about him. Now that truth does not need to be exhaustive. No one will ever know all the truth about God. But it does need to be accurate. But of course, the better we know him, the more deep and full our worship will be of him because those who know Him most can worship Him the best. So how then do we create true worshipers? We do it the same way Paul did on Mars Hill, by teaching them facts about God. And so our goal here is not to entertain people. It's not to amuse people. It's to acquaint people with the God of the Bible to acquaint them with His character, His attributes, His ways, His purposes, His glory. And this is the reason why we spend so much time reading the Scriptures because they reveal God to us. This is the reason why we choose the hymns we do and the hymnal we have because it of all hymnals does the best job of explaining to us about God and who He is and what He's like and what He does. This is the reason why we preach the Bible on a consecutive expository basis so that we can become acquainted with God. In Isaiah 40 and verse 9, it says, O Zion, that bringest good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem, that bringest good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength, Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. And that is the essence of what true worship is, is beholding your God. And that's why you have to know who that God is. 
so that you can behold him. So this then is what is necessary for worship, an accurate knowledge of the true God. God cannot be worshipped in ignorance. God must be worshipped in truth. That's why we study who God is and we learn about God from the Bible so that then we can worship Him according to that truth that's revealed in the Bible about Him. And these folks that were worshipping in the book of Revelation and all this heavenly worship, they knew about God. And it was that knowledge about who God was and what God did that formed the substance and content of their worship of God as they declared those truths about God. And you go to churches and the truth about God isn't declared hardly at all. Guess what? There's no worship of God there because there's no truth about him declared there or what is declared is in error. Secondly, there not only must be an accurate knowledge of the true God, the second thing that's necessary for worship is that there must be a personal acquaintance with God. There must be a personal acquaintance with God. Mere intellectual knowledge of God alone, while absolutely essential to worship, will never move one to worship unless there is the renewal and engagement of the inner man, that is, the engagement of the Spirit. We must not only worship in truth, we must worship in Spirit. There must be the engagement of the Spirit if we are to truly worship. And you see, if you are not spiritually alive, then you cannot worship in Spirit because a dead Spirit cannot worship A dead spirit cannot offer that which is pleasing to God. Romans 8.8 says, They that are in the flesh cannot please God. No unsaved person can offer any worship to God that is the slightest bit pleasing to Him. Ephesians 2 verses 1-3 through says, That when you were dead in trespasses and sins, you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, and you were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. And the point is, God cannot have wrath towards someone and receive worship from them at the same time. Now, the good news is that those who are dead in trespasses and sins can be made alive through spiritual resurrection, through the new birth. But before that happens, none of their worship, no matter how sincerely offered, is acceptable to God. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, Paul says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed is not grievous, but to you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. The mutilators of the flesh, he calls them. Now verse 3, For we are the true circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. 
And this passage expresses very clearly who is able to worship God in the spirit. That is those who have the true circumcision of the heart. That is the new birth. As it says in Romans 2 verses 28 and 29, he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. Neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew, which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter whose praise is not of men, but of God. And so the distinguishing characteristic of people who are truly saved, who have the true circumcision of heart, who are truly born again, is that they worship God in the spirit and they rejoice in Christ Jesus and they have no confidence in themselves, no confidence in the flesh. You see, it's not until we're born again. It's not until we're saved. It's not until we're spiritually alive that we can worship God in spirit because you see, before you're saved, your spirit is dead in trespasses and sins. And it says in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5, and you has He made alive who were dead. And once you become alive and your spirit becomes alive, then you can worship. And you see, it's only a living, regenerate spirit that will make you alive to God, that will make you ravished with God, that will make you responsive to God in the inner man so that God becomes precious to you. Only a resurrected, alive spirit in the inner man will enable us to relate to God in the realm of of the Spirit. And you see, this is the reason why when you have true spiritual worship like I'm talking about, and an unsaved person comes in, even though they may profess to be a Christian, they can't enter into that worship because it's not external enough to appeal to their flesh. Because it's all about internal and your internal interactions with God, and they don't have that, they come in and they go, there's nothing here. Make me a golden calf. I can relate to that. But worship God in my spirit? Well, give me an emotional feeling. I can can relate to that. But by faith in my inner man have interactions with God that are satisfying to me? Only a born-again person can experience that. In 1 Peter 2, and in verse 9, It says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Who is qualified to be able to show forth his praises? The answer, those who have been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And nobody else can show forth those praises because nobody else can relate to that God. Because they're dead inside and they're at enmity with him anyway. And when you set him forth, instead of being pleased with him and ravished with him, they are offended at such a God that would be sovereign, that would elect people, that would choose people. My, take away my self-will. So clearly, only those who are spiritually alive Only those who have been saved by faith in Jesus Christ are capable of true worship 
because only they have a living spirit with which they can worship God in spirit. And only they have a true knowledge of God so that they can relate to God in the realm of truth. They alone have spiritual life which makes worship in the spirit possible. Listen to the words of Psalm 103 verses 1 through 5 and ask yourself, could an unsaved person say any of this? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Notice the focus on the inner man. Bless the Lord, uh, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies thy mouth with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagle's. You know, an unsaved person can't say any of that stuff. He's mad at God. He's not rejoicing in God. He's offended at God. He's not delighting in God because he's still at war with God. And so all the worship of the unsaved is unacceptable to God. And you know, I've had people come and say, you know, the spirit isn't here and the worship's dead as a doornail and I don't feel close to God. Let me ask you a question. Is the problem with them or is the problem with what we're doing here? We need to constantly pray to God to awaken and enliven our spirits, to take away the cold-heartedness and indifference that rises up even in the people of God. But it's always the nature of the people of God that their grief is that they don't worship God better, draw near to Him more, be more inflamed with love and affection for their God. So if we are to worship, let us prepare our hearts for worship by filling our minds with thoughts of God. When you gather together here for worship and you sit down and the piano's playing, put away all distracting thoughts. Furnish your mind with thoughts of God. And if you don't know how to do that, just open one of the Psalms and start reading it. And that'll start to furnish your mind with thoughts of God. Call to mind what you know of Him. Ask the Spirit to give you an increasing sight of Him. And when you sing, sing thoughtfully to God. When the prayers are offered, enter into those with your heart. Listen reflectively to the reading of Scripture and to the preaching of the Scripture and say, Oh Lord, is it I? What do I need to do about this? Lord, could I be guilty of this? Lord, I can take this comfort to myself. This promises for me. And so let us prepare our hearts for worship by filling our minds with thoughts of God. Secondly, let us deal with that which would dull our spirits toward God. You know, when you show up to church with unrepentant sin, a defiled conscience, a disturbed mind, an angry heart, you're not going to be able to worship. You have to put that stuff away. And that's another reason for spending time to prepare your heart for worship. Is to spend your time confessing sin. Because there has to be 
a right relationship between you and God before you can worship God. And just like God said, if you come to the altar, remember that you've got a, something between you and your brother, leave your gift, go make a right with your brother, and then come back because you know what? You can't worship when you're in sin. And if we're supposed to do that between ourselves and our brother, how much more between ourselves and God? You know, if we come to worship and there's something between us and God, we've got to make that right or the worship isn't going to work. It says in Psalm 24 and verse 2 that we're to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And that means if there's sin, we need to confess it before we go to worship. And you recall the verse I read to you early, the indictment of Jesus against the Pharisees. When in verse 8, he said to them, You draw near to me with your mouth and honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. You see no worship in spirit. And then he says, You teach for doctrines the commandments of men. No truth. As a result, he says, In vain do you worship. And you see, when there's no truth and there's no spirit, there's no worship. And if we're going to worship God, we have to engage our inner man. We have to engage with the truth of God's word that tells us about who God is. And we have to focus on him and give ourselves to his worship. And when we do, God is pleased with our worship. The Father is seeking those kind of people to worship Him, and He loves to receive that kind of worship. But folks, worship has got to be about Him and not about you. And it's self-centeredness instead of God-centeredness that destroys acceptable worship. Well, may the Lord help us then to have these perspectives in mind as we go through our confession of faith together. And may it motivate us to really pay attention to and take to heart the lessons that we're going to be learning in Sunday school. Because there's nothing more important that you do in life than worshiping God. May you do it exceedingly well. And if you're going to be an expert at anything in life, be an expert at worship. Let that be your primary competence. And if everything else gets left in the dust, well, you've invested your life in the very best thing. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for being willing to even receive our worship. Thank you that we can offer to you spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to worship you according to the truth that is in your word, not by the vain imaginations of what we think you might be like, but by the very words and phrases that declare what you are like. And our Father, may we worship you in spirit. Lord, I confess that often my own thoughts have been distracted mightily as I have led worship to other things while just formally mouthing the words, please forgive me. And Lord, I pray for each of us that we might do better in terms of bringing forth fruit to you 
in focusing on you. Help us then not to think our own thoughts, or to speak our own words, or to do our own works. But may we delight ourselves in the Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.